Searching for last-minute gifts? Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC and save 20% on select 750-milliliter bottles. That's 20% off gifts for the hard to shop for. 20% off gifts guaranteed to fit. 20% off gifts to celebrate the season. And 20% off a little gift for yourself. Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC. In stores and online now through December 21st. Please sip responsibly. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military and the other 99 percent of us we owe them online at americanveteranshow.com here's stephan tubbs welcome to this week's edition of the american veteran show thank you so much as always for joining us and coming up we make no apologies if we on this program and people like you and me, if we don't continue to talk about Afghanistan and to remember what happened and our 13 service members killed, the Americans still left behind, I ask you rhetorically, friends, who will? Last week on the floor of many a Senate hearing room, many people were talking about it. We will get into it with all of the generals as well as the Secretary of Defense, as they were grilled by senators just a few days ago. Welcome on this Sunday. And, of course, we couldn't do this program without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at BosonLaw.com. It's B-O-E-S-E-N Law, BosonLaw.com. Attorneys fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. Their number, 303-999-999. Now, we'll put aside for a moment the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair General Mark Milley. We'll put aside his commentary as well as his comments uh, dealing with China, calling the counterpart in China. We're talking about what happened at the end of August with Americans being left behind. You can certainly recall, if you paid attention to the news, what it looked like at the Hamid Karzai International Airport or H. Kaya, as they call it. It was the Joint Chiefs Chair who opened things up with this opening statement. And we must remember that the Taliban was and remains a terrorist organization, and they still have not broken ties with al-Qaeda. I have no illusions who we are dealing with. It remains to be seen whether or not the Taliban can consolidate power or if the country will further fracture into civil war. But we must continue to protect the United States of America and its people from terrorist attacks coming from Afghanistan. A reconstituted al-Qaeda or ISIS with aspirations to attack the United States is a very real possibility. And those conditions to include activity in ungoverned spaces could present themselves in the next 12 to 36 months. That mission will be much harder now, but not impossible. General Mark Milley from several days ago in Washington, D.C. I want to make this as simple as possible, not for your benefit, but for mine. Here's the bottom line. Were Americans left behind? Did military officials 
the ones that we see in public, General McKinsey, General Milley, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, did they tell the President of the United States, the Commander-in-Chief, to keep X amount of U.S. military personnel in Afghanistan, specifically in Kabul, as they got people out? That's the big main goal here. What was the answer? And over the past few days, we've heard very conflicting reports. Coming up later in the program, you will hear a reporter consistently try to grill White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. And you may be surprised at how eventually Jen Psaki clearly ran out of patience. First, from last week, Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma. How many American citizens, uh, is it your opinion, are still there? Uh, just, just go down the line, each one of you. Anyone? Senator, I would uh, defer to the State Department for that, uh, for that uh, assessment. That's, uh, that's a dynamic process. They've, they've been contacting the uh, civilians that are in, in Afghanistan. And, uh, and again, I, I would defer to them for definitive numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead. Others? Just same, uh, as the Secretary just said. There, there were numbers at the beginning of this whole process with a, uh, the F-77 report out of the, um, out of the embassy. Um, and we know that we took out uh, almost 6,000, I guess it is, American citizens. Uh, but how many remain? But, okay, do, you, do all of you agree that uh, Secretary of State Blinken, when he made his analysis as to how many people would be here but would still be there, he talked about the ten to 15,000 citizens left behind. And uh, the and then evacuated some six thousand. That would mean a minimum of four thousand would be um, would still be there now. Would anyone disagree with that? Uh, by your silence, I assume yeah. you agree. I, I have no. Uh, um, I, I don't. I personally don't believe that there are four thousand American citizens. Uh, uh, still left in Afghanistan, but I cannot confirm or, or deny that, uh, Senator. So you think uh, Secretary of State was probably wrong in his analysis? Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma. Try to always distinguish between what we're presenting to you and you make your own decision. And when it's commentary, may I take just a moment for commentary after what you saw? They might as well have looked at each other and said, no comment. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, blaming, in essence, the State Department. Well, you better go talk with the State Department. The others, as you heard the senator say, well, I'll judge by your silence what's really going on here. The question remains, have we received the truth about what's gone on in Afghanistan? And are we anywhere close to getting the truth even today or in this case just last week? back to that Senate hearing with Joint Chiefs Chair Mark Milley. General Milley, it's your testimony that you recommended 2,500 troops uh, approximately stay in Afghanistan? Um, As I've said many times before this committee and other committees, I don't share my personal recommendations to the president, but I can tell you my personal opinion and my assessment if that's what you want. Yes, please. Um, Yes, my assessment was... uh, Back in the fall of 20, and it remained consistent throughout that uh, we should keep a steady state of 2,500, and it could bounce up to 3,500, maybe something like that. 
uh, in order to move toward a negotiated gated solution. Did you uh, present? Did you ever present that assessment personally to President Biden? I don't discuss exactly what uh, my conversations are with the sitting president in the Oval Office, but I can tell you what my personal opinion was, and I'm okay. always candid. General McKenzie, do you share that assessment? Senator, I do share that assessment. Um, did you ever present that opinion personally to President Biden? Again, I'm not going to be able to comment on uh, those executive discussions. Did General Miller ever present that opinion personally to President Biden? I think it would be best to ask him. I believe that his opinion was well heard. Uh, Secretary Austin, uh, President Biden last month in an interview with George Stephanopoulos said that no military leader advised him to leave a small troop presence in Afghanistan. Is that true? Uh, Senator Cotton, I, uh, I believe that, uh, well, first of all, I, I know the president to be an honest and forthright man. Uh, and it's just, secondly, it's a, it's a simple question, Secretary Austin. He said no senior military leader advised him to leave a small troop presence behind. Is that true or not? Did these officer and General Miller's recommendations get to the president personally? Their input was, uh, was received by the president and considered by the president, uh, for sure. Uh, in terms of what they specifically recommended, Senator, they just, as they just said, uh, it, they're not going to provide uh, what they recommended in confidence. On a scale of 1 to 10 for optics, it may be a 1 or 2. Finally, General Kenneth McKenzie of U.S. CENTCOM, he was there last week getting grilled as well. But I will give you my honest opinion, and my honest opinion and view shaped my recommendation. I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. The withdrawal of those forces would lead inevitably to the collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. General Kenneth McKenzie from U.S. CENTCOM in Florida there in D.C. last week. We've got much more ahead on this hearing from last week. You'll also hear about the, well, the accusations that General Mark Milley, the Joint Chiefs Chair, committed treason in calling his China counterpart. We'll talk about that coming up. Glad you're with us. As the American Veteran Show continues, don't forget to follow us online, as always, at AmericanVeteranShow.com. to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show, and thank you. Once again, we have no choice, and I think it is our duty as a program to continue to focus on what has happened in Afghanistan, the Americans that have been left behind, and as we speak on this Sunday afternoon, many are still there. Now, as you heard in our first segment, how many? I find it hard to believe as a concerned American citizen. We really don't know how many Americans are left behind, and I find that flat-out ludicrous. So why not give that number? I do not understand. What you're going to hear and what you heard last segment was a congressional hearing, a Senate hearing, on the floor of the U.S. Capitol. Nobody calling in via Zoom, everybody in person, including General Kenneth McKenzie, uh, the U.S. CENTCOM commander. You have the Joint Chiefs Chair, General Mark Milley, and you have the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, all in front of this congressional panel. 
And as we continue, Senator Tom Cotton, himself a veteran, grilling the Joint Chiefs chair. General Milley, I can only conclude that your advice about staying in Afghanistan was rejected. I'm shocked to learn that your advice wasn't sought until August 25th on staying past the August 31 deadline. I understand that you're the principal military advisor, that you advise, you don't decide, the president decides. But if all this is true, General Milley, why haven't you resigned? Senator, as a senior military officer, um, resigning is a really serious thing. It's a political act if I'm resigning in protest. My job is to provide advice. My statutory responsibility is to provide legal advice or best military advice to the president, and that's my legal requirement. That's what the law is. Um, The president doesn't have to agree with that advice. He doesn't have to make those decisions uh, just because we're generals. And it would be an incredible act of political defiance for a commissioned officer to just resign because my advice is not taken. This country doesn't want generals figuring out what orders we are going to accept and do or not. That's not our job. The principle of civilian control in the military is absolute. It's critical to this republic. In addition to that, just from a personal standpoint, you know, my, my dad didn't get a choice to resign at Iwo Jima. And those kids that are at Abbey Gate, they don't get a choice to resign. And I'm not going to turn my back on them. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to resign. They can't resign, so I'm not going to resign. There's no way. Uh, if the orders are illegal, we're in a different place. But if the orders are legal from civilian authority, I intend to carry them out. General Mark Milley, not sure if you paid any attention at all to the social media chatter from this past week, but it's very interesting. I would say it's about split down the middle. Many, many conservatives on social media praised Senator Tom Cotton for asking the question point blank, how come you didn't resign? And just as many people on the other side praised General Milley for his response, especially toward the end when he evoked the memory of his World War II father, who didn't have a chance, as you heard, to resign on Iwo Jima. More from the Joint Chiefs Chair. Would you use the term extraordinary success for, the, for what took place in August in Afghanistan? That's the non-combatant evacuation, and I think one of the other senators said it very well. It was a logistical success, but a strategic failure. And that's big. A logistical success, but a strategic failure. And we know the ultimate failure was the damage to our U.S. Treasure, the loss of 13 of our service members. We continue this week on the American Veteran Show, focusing on what happened last week, a Senate hearing with the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, with the commander of U.S. CENTCOM, General Kenneth McKenzie, and, of course, the man you're hearing from the most so far this program is General Mark Milley, United States Army, the Joint Chiefs Chair, and we continue. He was asked specifically about the way in which the United States, over the past five weeks and what happened in the debacle in Afghanistan, he was asked about the real damage, maybe perceived and real, when it comes to our allies. We told our interpreters, our drivers, our friends, the people who had had our backs during this entire period of time that we would not abandon them and that's exactly what we did and in an interview it's already been referred to um, on uh, network news president biden says and i quote if there's american citizens left we're gonna stay and get them all out two days later the president of the united states 
unequivocally said, any American who wants to come home, we'll get you home. We're going to stay and get them out. The President of the United States, our Commander-in-Chief, did exactly the opposite. Now, I think you were right, General Milley, when you advised that, that um, our credibility would be damaged. Our credibility has, has been gravely damaged, has it not, General Milley? I think that our credibility um, with allies and partners around the world and with adversaries uh, is being intensely reviewed by them to see which way this is going to go. And I think that damage is one word that could be used, yes. After this hearing, across town, at the White House, in the West Wing, again, the mixed messages. Listen to this as the White House press corps has the opportunity to talk with White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The president said his military commanders were split. We now know that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, the head of CENTCOM, General McKenzie, and the commander on the ground, General Miller, all recommended the president keep 2,500 troops. So who in his military advisors told him it would be fine to pull everybody out? I'm not going to get in specific details of who recommended what, but I can. I would reiterate a little bit of what I conveyed before, which is that there were recommendations made by a range of his advisors, something he welcomed, something he asked them to come to him uh, clear-eyed about, uh, to give him candid advice. Uh, what is also clear, though, and I'd also note again what Secretary Austin said today, is that was not going to be a sustainable over-the-long-term troop presence. We were always going to look at escalating the numbers, at potentially going back to war with the Taliban, at risking casualties. That was not a decision the president was going to make. But, of course, he welcomes advice. He welcomed advice. Ultimately, it's up to the commander-in-chief to make a decision. He made a decision it was time to end a 20-year war. But you are saying here that military advisors to the president said it was okay to pull all the troops out, that it would be fine. That's not what I said. What I said was they recommended, and I, I think we should not dumb this down for anybody here. We're talking about the initial phase post May 1. We're not talking about long-term recommendations. There was no one who said five years from now we could have 2,500 troops and that would be sustainable. And I think that's important for people to know and to understand. It's also important to know that the risks we were talking about here were the possibility, the likelihood of increasing a troop presence, given it required 6,000 troops to just protect the, the airport, something we now know. But the president pulled all U.S. troops out. You are saying that there were military commanders who advised him that that was a good idea to pull all American troops out and that General Milley, General McKenzie, General Miller, they said something else. But the president's top military advisors, others we won't name, told him, sure, we can pull everyone out. That's not how these conversations go. It's a risk assessment for every president about what is in the interests of the United States of America, our military, and our national interests. And if we had kept 2,500 troops there, we would have increased the number of troops, we would have been at war with the Taliban, we would have had more U.S. casualties. That was a reality everybody was clear-eyed about. There are some, as is evidenced by people testifying today, who felt we should have still done that. That is not the decision the president made. It's up to the commander-in-chief to make those decisions. Go ahead. Jen, thanks. It might be helpful if you could just tell us what do you mean by split? What were they split between? What's confusing about that? Well, it's either one, they were advising that 2,500 troops should remain on the ground, or two, that someone was advising 
that it should be zero. Well, what, what? Uh, again, Weijia, I don't think I think it's important for the American people to know that these conversations don't happen in black and white or like you're in the middle of a movie. These conversations are about a range of options, about what the the risk assessments are, about every decision, and of course there are individuals who come forward with a range of recommendations on what the right path forward looks like. And who are those people? That would be the big question from this last week. Coming up on the American Veteran Show in our next two segments. Overall, we're going to take a look at something called a soldier's play. It is back on Broadway, and it did very well at the Tony Awards recently. We'll talk about that. The Russian foreign minister weighs in on Cold War. And we'll have much more as we're just halfway through the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back. Glad you're with us. I know over the last month or so, you have heard a lot from Joint Chiefs Chair General Mark Milley. Well, here's a warning. You'll hear more from him. But this segment in a little bit different of a context, and that is what he allegedly has done and what he allegedly did wrong, because a lot of people are coming to his defense. Remember, there was the recent announcement of this new book called Peril by a gentleman from the Washington Post and longtime newsman and, of course, excellent journalist and and basis for the Watergate scandal being uncovered, Bob Woodward. But what did General Milley do, and was it okay to, say, have these calls, no matter how many people were in the room, have these calls with his Chinese counterpart, he talked about it, General Milley did, earlier this week. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I've, I've served this nation for 42 years. I've spent years in combat, and I've buried a lot of my troops who died while defending this country. My loyalty to this nation, its people, and the Constitution hasn't changed and will never change as long as I have a breath to give. With respect to the Chinese calls, I routinely communicated with my counterpart, General Lee, with the knowledge and coordination of civilian oversight. I am specifically directed to communicate with the Chinese by Department of Defense guidance, the policy dialogue system. These military-to-military communications at the highest level are critical to the security of the United States in order to deconflict military actions, manage crisis, and prevent war between great powers that are armed with the world's most deadliest weapons. The calls on 30 October and 8 January were coordinated before and after with Secretary Esper and Acting Secretary Miller's staffs and the interagency. The specific purpose of the October and January calls were were generated by concerning intelligence, which caused us to believe the Chinese were worried about an attack on them by the United States. I know, I am certain, that President Trump did not intend to attack the Chinese. And it is my directed responsibility, and it was my directed responsibility by the Secretary to convey that intent to the Chinese. My task at that time was to de-escalate. My message again was consistent. Stay calm, steady, and de-escalate. 
we are not going to attack you. At Secretary of Defense Esper's direction, I made a call to General Lee on 30 October. Eight people sat in that call with me, and I read out the call within 30 minutes of the call ending. On 31 December, the Chinese requested another call with me. The Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia-Pacific Policy helped coordinate my call, which was then scheduled for 8 January, and he made a preliminary call on 6 January. Eleven people attended that call with me, and readouts of this call were distributed to the interagency that same day. Shortly after my call ended with General Lee, I personally informed both Secretary of State Pompeo and White House Chief of Staff Meadows about the call, among other topics. Soon after that, I attended a meeting with Acting Secretary Miller, where I briefed him on the call. Later that same day, on 8 January, Speaker of the House Pelosi called me to inquire about the President's ability to launch nuclear weapons. I sought to assure her that nuclear launch is governed by a very specific and deliberate process. She was concerned and made, very, or made various personal references characterizing the President. I explained to her that the President is the sole nuclear launch authority and he doesn't launch them alone, and that I am not qualified to determine the mental health of the President of the United States. There are processes, protocols, and procedures in place, and I repeatedly assured her that there is no chance of an illegal, unauthorized, or accidental launch. By presidential directive and secretary of defense directives, the chairman is part of the process to ensure the president is fully informed when determining the use of the world's deadliest weapons. By law, I am not in the chain of command, and I know that. However, by presidential directive and DOD instruction, I am in the chain of communication to fulfill my legal statutory role as the president's primary military advisor. After the Speaker Pelosi call, I convened a short meeting in my office with key members of my staff to refresh all of us on the procedures which we practice daily at the action officer level. Additionally, I immediately informed Acting Secretary of Defense Miller of, Sec or of uh, Speaker Pelosi's phone call. At no time was I attempting to change or influence the process, usurp authority, or insert myself in the chain of command. I am submitting for the record a more detailed and unclassified memoranda that I believe you all now have, although late, and I'd be happy in a classified session to talk in detail about the intelligence that drove these calls. I'm also happy to make available any email, phone logs, memoranda, witnesses, or anything else you need to understand these events. My oath is to support the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will never turn my back on that oath. I firmly believe in civilian control of the military as a bedrock principle essential to the health of this republic, and I'm committed to ensuring that the military stays clear of domestic politics. That from last week in front of a Senate hearing. Well, just a day later, last Wednesday, this in the House hearing, grilling the Secretary of Defense and Joint Chiefs Chair General Milley. General Milley, do you think if the Chinese Communist Party decided to invade Taiwan, would their military leadership call and give you a heads up? I think there'd be a period 
of increased tension, indicators and warnings, and I think there'd be an exchange of various communications at all levels. Uh, Department you really of State. think the Chinese, and I think you really I think would, that you really think the Chinese Communist Party head of their of the PLA would call and say, "Hey, General, FYI, we're going to get ready to invade Taiwan." I just thought I'd give you a heads up. You think you I know honestly I, think that? I know I'd call him and ask him. No, I'm I would asking call him the other and ask question. Him outright. Do you think he'd give you a heads up? I think on the that, invasion um, of Taiwan. I, I think a, I think an invasion of Taiwan would be a fairly obvious thing to pick up on. No, no I didn't. But that's not what I asked. Let me, let me ask a let me ask a related question. Sure. I think the answer to that is no. I think if the head of the PLA called you and said, "Hey, we're getting ready to invade Taiwan," and Xi Jinping found out about it, he'd be shot. But let me ask a related question. You said you were quote certain that President Trump did not intend on attacking China. That's what you just said. Correct. Yet you're quoted in the Woodward book as telling the, cho- the top Chinese communist military commander, quote, if we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. Is that true, General Milley? Well, let me tell you what I actually said. Uh, well, that's we, not true. I hope that's Let me not. tell you what I actually said, Senator. Uh, what I said, if there's going to be a war... Uh, if there's going to be an attack, there's going to be a lot of calls and tension ahead of time. But what you you're going to get, ca- you're, you're going to get calls. Your call. testimony was that you were Senator, certain all- President Trump would not attack. That's your testimony this morning. That is true. That okay, is then why true. would you? And I was, I was communicating to my Chinese counterpart on instructions, by the way, to de-escalate the situation. And I told him that we are not going to attack. President Trump has no intent to attack. And I told him that repeatedly. And I told him if there was going to be an attack, there'll be plenty of communications going back and forth. Your intel system's going to pick it up. I said, I'll probably call you. Everybody will be calling you. We're not going to attack you. Just settle down. It's not going to happen. And I did it twice in October and January. I think if you're giving a heads up to the Chinese Communist Party. I didn't give them a heads up. We're going to attack because we weren't going to attack. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of Which was being faithful to the President of the United States' intent. Time I I was being faithful to his intent, Senator. As you hear, it has been a mess. Coming up in our final segment, among other things we'll talk about is a play... And it received a Tony Award recently for Best Revival Play. It's called A Soldier's Play. And we'll have that and much more as we wrap up this Sunday's edition of the American Veteran Show right here on 710 KNUS. Don't forget, miss a past episode? Simply get to your computer at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Glad you're with us as we wrap things up this Sunday on the American Veteran Show. I hope that you have been able to digest over the last hour how the Senate hearings went earlier this week and still so many unanswered questions, not only questions from members of the White House press corps, members of the United States Senate in the hearing that we've talked so much about, but unanswered questions from people like you and me. But we switch gears now, and 
How about as the United Nations wrapped up its General Assembly meeting in New York via a translator, this is the Foreign Minister of Russia making some very interesting comments last week. The U.S. administration has come up with the idea to convene a summit for democracy. It goes without saying that Washington is going to choose the participants by itself, thus hijacking the right to decide to what degree a country meets the standards of democracy. Essentially, this initiative is quite in the spirit of a Cold War, as it declares a new ideological crusade against all dissenters. It is noteworthy that this policy is being implemented against the backdrop of President Biden's words that the US is not seeking a world divided into opposing blocs. In fact, though, the summit for democracy will be a step towards dividing the global community into us and them. Wow. Through a translator, the Russian foreign minister as the UN General Assembly meeting wrapped up last week in New York. Speaking of the Big Apple, on Broadway, a play that has been around a while. It was a a film as well. It's called The Soldier's Play, and it's been in the news of late. One morning during mid-April 1944, a colored tech sergeant, Vernon C. Waters, assigned to the 221st Chemical Smoke Generating Company, stationed here before transfer to Europe, was brutally shot to death by a person or persons unknown. The only thing that will move the race's power. That's all the white respects. People like you, well, you just make us seem like fools. These whites down here, they won't see their duty or justice. They'll just see you. And once they do law, due process, it all goes. What is the point of continuing an investigation that can't possibly get at the truth? Unless you want charges brought against you for interfering in a criminal investigation, stay the hell out of my way. Now, the voice that you heard, you may remember him from L.A. Law way back in the day. The play stars Blair Underwood as an Army captain who investigates the murder of a black sergeant near an Army base in Louisiana, as you heard, back in 1944. And just last week with the Tony Awards... A Soldier's Play won the Tony for Best Revival of a Play. It was Charles Fuller's Pulitzer Prize-winning 1981 drama. Peterson, oh, I ain't forgot you, boy. Time to teach you a lesson. Why don't you drop dead, Sarge? No, I'm going to drop you out behind the barracks. Wilkie, go out and make sure everything's set up. You want all the NCOs. Uh (laughs) I'm going outside to wait for you, Geechee. And when you come out... I'm going to whoop your black southern ass. Let the whole company watch, too. You need to learn respect, how to talk to your betters, and fight hard here, because I'm going to try and bust your f***ing head open. Pardon us, but it was bleeped out. Thank you, producer Matt. Uh, The play opened in January of 2020. Then, of course, Broadway shut down with COVID. It received seven Tony nominations, the most of any play revival It's called A Soldier's Play. It also stars the former, well, he's still funny, 
The very funny guy from In Living Color, David Allen Greer, he talked about a soldier's play with Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. A soldier's play is coming to Broadway, and it's a powerful story. Well, you know, I didn't even know it had never been on Broadway. I was in the original production. I took over for Larry Riley. I played C.J. Memphis. And I was on stage with Sam Jackson, Denzel Washington, Adolf Caesar. Right. This was Uh, was the play many people say actually broke their careers in many ways. Yes, man, yeah. So I did that for about six months. Then I did the movie, uh, and I played Cobb, which was a different role. Mm -hmm. And when Kenny Leon called me, he said, you know, this is Broadway debut, and I assumed it had already been on Broadway. And he said, would you play Waters? And I had to do it, man. I had to do it. So it's been a complete circle. It's It's a a complete circle. It's a powerful story as well that seems to to live eternally. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a story that takes place, if, if I'm not mistaken, in 1944. And yeah, 43. 43, 44, mm-hmm. right, well, 43. 44, because it's after... Yes, you're right. Okay. <laughs> and so... And, and, and it's the story specifically from... from you know, it, it's a telling of a story mm-hmm. about black soldiers yeah. who are on a base. Yes. Dealing with the dichotomy of fighting for their country... Mm-hmm that oppresses them as second-class citizens. Yeah, and there's very much this belief um, that was there historically, that is there with their characters, that by letting us, black men, fight and die for our country, then maybe this country will view us as whole human beings and whole citizens. So uh, there's a lot of that talk of this will change everything. You know, just our our participation right. in this war. So we deal with all that. Yeah, and, and what's interesting... and there's music. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. music. It's no. a musical. <laughs> there's no music. No, there's, there's no music. music. No, but 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 it's a it's a. I, I, you know, I, I think it's a powerful story, not just because of what happens, but because it's a story that also shows you, you know, that black people are not a monolith, you know, because, you know, it's, it's not a story where it's like black versus white. It's like, no, no, it's so much more complex than that. It's black people themselves saying, I define myself. This is, this is how I see America. This is how I see America. This is how I see myself in well, you America. you know what? Um, I remember going to see the original production. Mm-hmm. Uh, my college roommate, Reg E. Cathy, who has oh, wow. since passed away, but he auditioned for this role. And he called me up and he said, listen, man, I'm not going to get this part, but you should call your agent, tell him to send you in, because I know you could get this part. So I did just that. And I went to the theater the night before my audition for Douglas Turner Ward, and I'm watching the play. What you said was one of the unique things, back, especially back in 82, where you have these 12 uh, characters mm-hmm. All black, but with all different opinions. Right. All different political points of view. Mm -hmm. So that's really what was unique. And they're all spouting it. I mean, and it was amazing to see on stage. And that's really what what gives it all that meat, you know, to the story. David Allen Greer talking about a soldier's play, which within the last 10 days or so won the Tony Award. In fact, it was just a week ago today. It won the Tony Award for Best Revival of a Play. And finally, we don't do this a lot. An NFL play makes it into the American Veteran Show. This one, a record 66-yard field goal. And we'll tell you why it's in the American Veteran Show after you hear the incredible call on CBS. On the 
its way. It bounces off the crossbar, and it's good! Oh, oh my goodness! Oh, my goodness! Oh, my... Did that just happen, Greg? Greg Gumbel on CBS Sports. So how is this making the American Veteran Show? Well, how about an active duty military member named Nick Cullison based now in Oklahoma? He grew up in the Baltimore area, and this active duty military man was raised to be a devoted Baltimore Ravens fan. He already, this past week, got a tattoo on his right thigh that says Tucker 66 yards way to go until there's another kick that's longer but for now mr cullison in the united states military he has his tattoo that wraps up this week's edition of the american veteran show for our producer matt steinkruger i'm Stephen tubbs have a great week ahead and remember our troops The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on prize picks. The most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players... Pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com/get100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.